All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church and to our continuing study of the book of Acts together. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. So we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to write His Word on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You now, Lord. And we call to remembrance, God, Your precious attributes, Lord. Your glorious attributes, God. That You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. And You've made a name for Yourself, even in our life, God. That You are the rock, Lord. And a world of unfaithfulness, Lord. You are the faithful one. You are the rock. You are our stability, Lord. You're a dwelling place in every generation. You've given us your word, Lord, as a firm place to stand. No matter what comes, God. And we pray this morning that as we open your word, that you would reveal yourself as the faithful God. The God who speaks, the God who never lies. The God whom heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away, Lord. Never, ever. God, reveal your faithfulness to us this morning. And God, I pray that you would even more than reveal it to us. God, cause us to partake of it. Cause us to take shelter, Lord, in your faithfulness, God. Be a shield to your people. Be our mighty rock. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts Acts chapter 27 this morning. We got a whole chapter. We got a lot of ground to cover. If If you've ever read the book of Acts, you make your way to Acts 27. You'll remember that this whole chapter is devoted. It's chronicling the Apostle Paul's sea voyage where... He goes from Caesarea and they send him to Rome. He's been in prison for two years in Caesarea. He appeals to Caesar. They finally put him on a ship and they send him to Rome. And then we come to Acts chapter 27. And it chronicles this journey, the sea journey to, to Rome. And as we read this chapter, and as we're catching the flow of the book of Acts, Acts 27 it can leave us scratching our head a little bit. And at at first glance, it looks like the space that's given to this particular narrative, this particular sea journey and the danger that the Apostle Paul encounters, it seems like the amount of space that this story is given in the book of Acts is out of proportion to its value in the book of Acts and what it actually advances in the narrative and the story of the book of Acts. And so it's important that we understand the proper background and the framework for how to read Acts 27 because there's something hanging in the background that if we don't understand, we'll be left scratching our head of, yes, you know, that's an encouraging story, but I'm not really sure why that story is in uh, Acts and why, why we take a whole chapter to cover this story. So the appropriate background, as we have mentioned, in the last several weeks, is Jesus has made 
some very specific promises to the Apostle Paul. You remember those? Shake your head if you remember those. Jesus has told the Apostle Paul very specific promise that he, he is going to bear witness to Jesus Christ in Rome, in the imperial city, in Rome itself. And so that promise has been made and it's actually been confirmed by Jesus. It's been made twice now in the book of Acts. And so with that background, we see Acts 27 is actually an, an, an encouraging display of the power of God to keep that promise to Paul. The power of God to be faithful to his promise. And so Acts 27 highlights the faithfulness of God. And this is, this is a very important attribute of God. All of God's attributes are important. This is a very important attribute. The faithfulness of of God. I want you to think about the faithfulness of God. It's, a, it's the foundation of Christianity. In other words, if God is not faithful, the whole thing crumbles. Okay? Because Christianity, the Christian gospel, it's a promise. The word means good news. It's an announcement of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. It's a promise. And that means that the Christian gospel... It's only as good as the God who stands behind that word, the God who stands behind that promise. And so this is the faithfulness of God. This is what's highlighted in Acts 27. Now, we're going to zone in on a very unique individual in church history, the Apostle Paul. You know, raise your hand this morning if you're the apostle to the Gentiles and no hands go up. Because this man is extremely unique in church history. The apostle to the Gentiles. And so there's some really unique things happening in this story that are really unique because Paul is really unique. And one of the things we're going to see is that Paul is given some very specific promises to stand before Caesar. And what we're going to see is that, that though those promises, those specific promises, Situational promises don't directly apply to us. God's dealing with Paul in Acts 27 shows us that God is faithful. And that means that this chapter of Scripture is going to exhort us, encourage us to take God at His word. To trust in the promises of God. He is the Lord who always keeps His promises. And this is important. Learning to take God... At his word, this is an important thing because this is how you become a Christian. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but how you actually become a follower of Christ is you become a believer. You begin to take God at his word. You begin to live on his promises, to feed on his promises. And not only this is not only how you become a Christian, this is actually how we grow as Christians. That month by month, year by year, we ought to be growing in our faith, in our conviction that God's promises are true. More and more taking God at His Word. And one of the things that we're going to see is God intends to grow us in faith, to grow our trust in His promises that He's given us in His Word. That one of the, one of the things that we see so often, over and over again... In Scripture is one of the ways God intends to do this in your life 
is through what the Apostle Peter calls trials of various kinds. The Lord's going to bring you into trials of various kinds. And some of you this week, you've received bad news. Some of you in this room, you've received bad news this week, and I know about it. And there are others in this room, and you've, you've received bad news this week, and I don't know about it. And maybe even nobody in this room knows about it. But if you're a Christian, the Bible tells us that one of the things that God is after when you experience trials of various kinds is He intends to test, to confirm the genuineness of your faith. And that's what we're going to see in this story. There's going to be a two-week period in the Apostle Paul's life where he's lost at sea. He's drifting in, in the midst of a storm. And that's by way of analogy, the Christian life, it can sometimes feel like that. And there's some encouragement in Acts 27 for us. It can often feel when you follow the Lord Jesus like you're drifting. And even, even experiencing seasons of hopelessness. And we need to learn, brothers and sisters, in these trials, we need to learn to trust the Lord. To rest in the Word of God. To trust the sovereign promises of our God. And there's encouragement here in Acts 27 for you as a follower of Christ. Even though you're not sitting on a ship lost at sea. There's an encouragement here that you're going to get a glimpse and a reminder that your God is sovereign. And that it doesn't matter if you're in the darkest pit that you can imagine. He is providentially ruling over every detail of our lives. And His promises never fail. His word, His promises to us, they will never fail. He will work all things according to His word. So with that background, let's jump in to Acts 27. Together, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidian, which was about to sail to the ports Along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from where we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because of the winds that were against us, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was the city, which was near the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, 
Paul advised saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So he sets the stage that the Apostle Paul is sent to Rome on a ship. And actually there are two ships. They go a little ways and then they jump to another ship. And one of the things I want you to notice in these beginning verses of Acts 27. Is that this story is presented to us in, in we language. W-E. We language. Not they language. Okay. And what that means is that the writer of Acts, Luke is actually on the ship with the Apostle Paul. This is one of the we sections of the book of Acts. We haven't seen that in several chapters. And so we, Paul's not by himself on the ship. He's got a brother with him, a Christian with him, Luke. And not only Luke, in verse 2, we see that there's another brother on the ship with him. His name is Aristarchus. And we're told he's a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And his name shows up several times in the New Testament. Now, I just want to, I just want to make mention in this and, and move on. These men, Luke and, uh, Luke and Aristarchus, they are not mentioned as prisoners in this story. Which means that they're on this ship with the Apostle Paul of their own free will and on their own dime. Okay? They don't have to be there. They're choosing to be there. They're not, they're not being paid by the Roman government to be there. They're, ma they're making significant sacrifices to come alongside the Apostle Paul on his voyage to Rome. And I'll just leave you with this one question to consider. That this is a really good example, just a passing example in the Word of God of what love for the body of Christ looks like. And you just ask yourself this, just in passing, am I a friend like that to my brothers and sisters in Christ? That I'm willing to make significant sacrifices to enter in, into the suffering of my brothers and sisters. That I'm willing to be inconvenienced and even extremely inconvenienced. That when my brothers and sisters suffer, I suffer. When they rejoice, I rejoice. So there's an encouraging example here. Just that these two brothers have come along with the Apostle Paul. This ship, we're told later in this chapter, there's 276 people on this ship. It's a really large ship. And they're made up of three parties. You've got sailors. you got soldiers. It's represented by the centurion. That word centurion, it just simply means ruler of a hundred. That's the way, that's the, way the Roman ar army works. Centurions had a hundred men under their jurisdiction. So you got soldiers. you got Sailors, and then you have prisoners like the Apostle Paul, 276 men. Now we're told that there's something going on with this particular time of year. In verse 9, it says that the fast was already over. 
That's a reference to the only Jewish fast that was prescribed in the Word of God, the Day of Atonement. So this particular time of year, the Jewish fast, the Day of Atonement is, is over. And we're told that winter's beginning to set in. And this apparently this makes sea travel on the Mediterranean very dangerous. And that's why we have that language. As they jump from port to port, city to city, they're hugging the coastline because winter's setting in and the sea is dangerous and becoming more dangerous. Now what we know at this point in the story is that everybody on the ship knows that because of the time of year it is, they're not going to make it to Rome. Okay? That's already settled. And so they, they begin to do the next best thing. And they begin to try to figure out where they're going to spend the winter. They need a harbor somewhere to spend the winter. They make it to a place called Fair Havens. But the majority on board aren't content to stay there for the winter. And so even though this, the stage is set, that the sea is dangerous, they set out. And we pick it up again in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boats. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sidus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So here we go. Very shortly after they set out to try to make just a little bit more headway, to try to get just to a little bit better harbor, we're told that this hurricane-like wind is hurled upon the Mediterranean Sea. The Greek word to describe this wind is typhonicus, similar to the word typhoon, hurricane-like storm that tossed the sea. To and fro. A violent storm on the Mediterranean Sea. And then the text tells us that the sailors of this ship, they take five precautionary measures to prepare for this violent storm. Let me give them to you. First, verse 16, we're told that they secure the lifeboats. These are the little dinghies attached to the ship. They didn't want these, you know, as they were riding these crashing waves, they didn't want their lifeboats to get busted into pieces, so, so they secure them. Step two, step two in verse 17, we're told that they tie ropes around the ship. And this would have been for additional support. Uh, this, is, this was a sailing practice known as frapping. 
wrap the ship either long ways or around the hull. And as they were pulled tightly, this would have been additional bracing for the ship to try to help it not to snap in half as it was crashed around on the waves. And then the third step, verse 17, we're told that they lowered the gear. And your ESV footnote tells you that that's most likely the drift anchor was lowered to slow this ship down, to, to provide some stability as this violent storm drove this ship along the sea. So these are precautionary measures that the sailors take to try to ride out this storm. And then we're told that a violent storm becomes even more violent. This is verse 17. And so the final steps are the most drastic. Step number four, verse 18 tells us that they throw over some cargo over the ship. Now we're told that this ship that they're on is a ship from Alexandria. That's from Egypt. And most likely this cargo would have been grain. Egypt, Egypt was known as the breadbasket of the city of Rome. Almost half of Rome's grain was provided uh, from Egypt, from the breadbasket. And it was shipped into Rome on these ships. And so they began to unload the cargo, most likely grain. It's mentioned even later in this chapter as wheat, as wheat. And so they begin, this would have been the equivalent of thousands of modern day dollars. And they're, they're dropping truckloads of grain into the Mediterranean Sea. They're trying to, they're taking desperate measures to try to lighten this ship, to make it more agile in this violent storm. And their final fifth, fifth step is we're told in verse 19 that they threw over the ship's tackle. That's the ship's equipment. Again, this is a final desperate attempt to lighten this ship. So they make these precautions and they're riding out the storm. Now, most of us, maybe a few of us, but most of us can only imagine the sheer terror of what it feels like to be lost on sea, to be lost at sea. And I want you to think about this. Every time, you know, there, there are very few things in God's creation that can compare with the ability to make us feel small, insignificant, and powerless as gazing out upon the ocean. Very few things can compare with it. And you can think about that since you were maybe a little kid that every trip that you've ever taken to the beach and you began to look out and you see waves and at the edge of the horizon, you don't, they don't stop. It's just waves upon waves upon waves and this massive expanse. And the Bible tells us that creation declares the glory of God. And many of you have experienced that as you look out upon those waves that you feel gloriously small. And those waves are, are huge and, and, and they were made by this mighty God. And even all the ocean is only the fringes of this God's power. Only the outskirts of this God's ways. Very few things are able to make us feel small like the ocean. Much less lost at sea. And so standing at, out on the beach with your feet on solid ground and feeling gloriously small is one thing. But transported about a hundred miles into the middle of the ocean with no hope of ever standing on land again is a completely other thing. Totally helpless. 
Totally helpless. This, this chapter tells us that this happened for 14 days. Non-stop. And I want you to try to get there. Try to feel the drama of this story. 14 days of riding violent waves. Up and then crashing down again. Riding up, maybe 10 feet, maybe a 15 foot wave, maybe a 20 foot wave. Up and then slamming down. Over and over. Can't see land. You can't even see stars. Text tells us you can't even see the sun. 14 days of constantly riding up and down upon the mighty, mighty waves. And I want you to imagine the disposition of the human heart. And rightly so, as it's placed into the middle of the ocean and around a raging sea. It's a testimony to the power of God. You think about the, the tallest buildings that humans can build. The strongest structures that we can build. Think about the Burj Khalif in Dubai. Tallest building on planet, planet Earth. And you drop it in the middle of uh, one of these mega storms in the middle of the ocean. And it'll snap it in half. Strongest thing that man can build. And the ocean can crush it in a moment. 14 days seeing the power of God revealed in His works of creation. This raging storm. Rain. Imagine it. You can only imagine it. The rain, the wind, the thunder, no sun, no stars, two weeks straight. And then look at verse 20. Even more than all the flashes of nature happening around you, I want you to imagine the anguish of the human heart. And during those 14 days, we're told that one by one, every single man on that ship buried every future plan that he ever made. Think about that. All the things that you plan for, all the things that you dream your life to be. And one by one, they buried those dreams. And the text says in verse 20, that all hope was abandoned. All hope was abandoned. They never dreamed of stepping foot on dry ground again. Now, Let's jump out of that and let's get into the mindset of a first-time reader of the book of Acts. A first-time good reader of the book of Acts. Someone who's reading the book of Acts for the first time and they don't know how it ends yet. I want you to get into the mind and feel the tension of a first-time reader of the book of Acts. And there would be something hanging over this whole story. And they would begin to feel the tension of the narrative. And what is it? And someone would begin to ask. What about those promises that Jesus made to the Apostle Paul? Jesus told him. And Jesus can never lie. Jesus told him twice in the book of Acts. Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. So I want you to feel that tension in this narrative of what we should be thinking as we're reading this story rightly. What will become of the promises of Jesus Christ? These mighty waves that are about to swallow up this boat, will they swallow up the promises of God? Are the promises that Jesus made to Paul, are they about to sink to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, never to be seen Again, this is what's at stake in this story. Creation unleashes its power. Is it able to stop?
the promise of God. This is the appropriate tension in the narrative. Let's pick it up again in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. That it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So I want you to, I want you to imagine that moment. Just in the, in the Apostle Paul's life. He's looking out and everything with his natural eyes seems like there's no path forward. And then that promise. That word of promise comes. And it doesn't matter if everything that he sees tells him, I will not get to Rome. That promise reminds him that you, in fact, will. You, in fact, will get to Rome. And so in the middle of this hopelessness, 276 men on this ship, abandoning all hope, Paul stands up in their midst and he takes on the role of a prophet. A man who declares God's word. Declares the word of God twice in these verses. He urges them to take courage. Take courage, men. And he does this on the basis of receiving a promise from God. Paul received special revelation from God in this passage. And I believe that, that something significant happens here. That in verse 10, earlier, earlier in this chapter... Paul says, I per, sirs, I perceive that th if we leave right now, people are going to die. There's going to be loss of life. And I believe at that point in this story, Paul is operating under general revelation. Okay? He's a seasoned traveler. He's traveled thousands of miles by ship. Okay? And so he has sanctified common sense. He knows how stuff works. Okay? Raging sea out there. Boat in a harbor, boat leave harbor, and enter raging sea, people die. People tend to die. That's his, his, he's reading general revelation. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, he receives special revelation from God. A situational word from God. And this is a twofold promise. In verse 24, Paul is told that he will stand before Caesar. And, and of all the things that that means, it means this. He's not going to die in this storm. He's going to stand before Caesar. This storm can unleash all the fury that it desires, but he will stand before Caesar. This is the promise of Jesus. And then look at this second piece. This angel comes and it reveals that God has granted to Paul every passenger on this ship. 
276. Every passenger on this ship. And that's a beautiful little detail because it tells us that while the past 14 days, while these men on this ship were burying their dreams and being driven to hopelessness, it tells us the Apostle Paul was interceding. That's what that language means. I have granted what you asked me to do. I have granted you these men. It's a beautiful picture that he's been interceding on behalf of 276 lost men. And he's been bowing his knee in the midst of this mega storm on the Mediterranean. And he's asking God for mercy. Lord, please spare them, Lord. Please be gracious to them, Lord. Preserve their life. And this promise tells us that God has answered that prayer. Answered that prayer. And so at this point in Acts 27, the God who cannot lie goes on record with these two promises. Paul's going to stand before Caesar and every human being on this ship will live and not die. Despite the raging waves, despite the hopelessness, every human being on this ship would live. This is the word of God. He speaks against everything that could be seen. With the natural eye in the midst of this storm. And now what we're going to see is that promise that Jesus made. The Lord made to preserve life on the ship. It's attacked in two different ways as this chapter closes. Let's pick it up again in verse 27. When the 14th night had come. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They called on their false gods, completely hopeless. They're reaching for the last straw, praying for day to come. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes. Of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and given thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then all who were encouraged, then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they when they had eaten, eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, 
But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The boat stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. So God's promise is sure. And we'll come back to the Lord fulfilling His Word as we close. But I want us to notice two attacks on the promise of God in the last part of chapter 27. One attack came from the sailors. And the other attack came from the soldiers. Look in verse 31. There were some sailors scared out of their mind. And we're told in verse 31 that they were pretending to let out anchors and they wanted to escape in the little lifeboats, the little dinghies, trying to save their skin. And this was one attack on the promise of God. And then we come to the soldiers in verse 43. And we're told that these soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners in case they, they escaped. Because that would be a really bad thing for a Roman soldier who was charged to protect a prisoner. That if he escaped your custody, you would be killed. So the soldiers say, let's kill him so nobody gets away. And if you notice, both of these, both of these scenarios... Would have undermined God's promise that everyone on this ship will be saved from death. Physical death. Everyone on this ship will live and not die. And so he says this explicitly in verse 31. He looks at the centurion. There's these sailors scatter, scattering off over in the corner. And Paul says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And I want you to think about that this morning. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. That phrase is very instructive to us about the sovereignty of God. In Acts 27, God had a plan. God made a promise and God had a plan. The promise of God, all will be saved. God's plan to get all saved, nobody dying, was everybody stays in the ship. God had a promise. God made a promise. And God had a plan. And as it relates to God's sovereignty, this is instructive to us because it shows us that God is not only... He, he, when He determines things, He doesn't only fix the end and determine the end. The God of the Bible also determines the means... That bring about the end. It's not one or the other. God is sovereign over the end. But he also determines the means. So think about this. 
The promise wasn't everybody's going to be saved on the boat, so do whatever you want. And your cho choices don't matter at all. That wasn't, that's not the framework of Acts 27. That promise was made, no doubt, all will be saved. But look at the means. The means is everybody's got to stay on the ship. God is sovereign over the end. And He's sovereign over the means. This is the God of the Bible. Not just one or the other. Okay, The God of the Bible is sovereign over the end. And He's sovereign over the means. I just want to mention this. If you have any questions, you can ask me about this later. But I just want to mention this, that one of the greatest, most frequent misunderstandings of Reformed theology is it being caricatured as fatalism. Okay, And let me talk to you a little bit about what fatalism is. Determinism. Fatalism. Fatalism says this, that if God determines the end, then the means don't matter at all. If God fixes something at the end, then that means human beings and our choices and what we do, we don't matter at all. That's fatalistic. That makes people robots. And this is definitely not true. Okay, Fatalism is not true. The, God, the Bible is not fatalistic. He does not fix the ends in such a way that the means don't matter at all. And we know that from Acts 27. God's going to save every person on this ship. But they have to stay in the boat. That's the means. That's God's plan. That's how He's going to bring it about. Now the opposite error of fatalism is something called Arminian theology. And this makes the exact opposite error. Okay, Fatalism is God fixes the, the end and the means don't matter. Arminian theology is that the means determine the ends. That everything rests on a human being. Everything is rotting on our choice. And again, that framework doesn't fit in Acts 27. God fixed the end. He determined nobody will die on this ship. Okay? It was the Word of God. It was the unbreakable Word of God. The promise of God. And so neither of these can account for the framework that we see in Acts 27. And I believe the clear teaching of Scripture and, and, and Reformed theology rightly understood, it shows God to be sovereign over the ends and the means. Not one or the other. God is sovereign over the end and over the means. And there are many different ways that that grid can help you in the Christian life. That's not just an academic you know, thing to argue about, try to figure out you know, which bubble on the scantron that you, you know, do I believe this or this? This determines how you live. Determines how you live. And I'll give you just one example of this. Think about how this framework affects how you evangelize your children, how you pray for your children. We need a right understanding of who God is, that He's sovereign over the ends. And he's sovereign over the means. And so let's examine just those three worldviews, those three mindsets, and how you pray for your children. Here's what fatalism says. Here's what fatalism, determinism says. That God chooses which children are saved. God chooses that. Therefore, what we do as parents, it doesn't matter. That's already taken care of. We're just robots. 
you know, what we do, it has no effect. It has no real input. Okay? That's fatalism. God fixes the end. Therefore, what I do as a parent, it doesn't matter at all. Okay? Fatalism. Arminian theology says that every, uh, in, in this particular situation, it tells us that everything is up to our child. Everything is up to your kid. The means determine the ends. Their choice determines everything. Okay? And I want you to think about those two ways of thinking about God are both equally really bad news to us as parents. Really bad news to us as parents. I want you to think about uh, one framework makes our children robots and the other framework makes our children deities. Okay? They're either a robot or they're a deity in that framework. Fatalism, they're a robot. Their choices don't really matter. Arminian theology, they're a deity. They're, they're, their choices determine everything. They're sovereign. And I want you to think about that. Think about how much more hope we need as parents than either one of those frameworks can offer us. The Bible tells us a few things about our children. It tells us that they have blind eyes. So, so, so if, the, if the truth is that everything is up to them, then I want, you to, I want you to begin to unpack how sad this is. And how crushing these wrong ideas about God are. Our children have blind eyes and they cannot see Jesus Christ. Our children have deaf ears and they cannot hear the word of the gospel. Even if you grab a megaphone and shout in their ears. The Bible says that our children are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're in a spiritual coffin. They need to be raised from the dead. So think about how hopeless that worldview is. If everything is up to them. Everything is up to them. And imagine how God would respond to either one of these frameworks as we begin to pray. The fatalism framework. We begin to call out to God and say, God, please save my children. And to fatalism, God responds, that's already been decided. Why are you praying to me about that? Why are you praying to me about that? The Arminian mindset says, God, please save my children. And God responds to that mindset. Why are you talking to me? Everything's up to them. What do you want me to do? I've already done everything that I can. It depends on them now. What are you asking God to do when you pray for your lost children? And the answer is found that grid in Acts 27. You're asking for sovereign mercy. You're asking for God to empower them to follow Jesus Christ. God doesn't believe for them or repent for them. God works upon them in sovereign mercy from heaven. He raises them from that spiritual coffin and they believe the gospel. This is Reformed theology. That God has ordained to save our children through our prayers. And through our evangelism, not, not in spite of them, through them, the means, the God-ordained means, put the seed in the hearts of your kids and bow the knee and ask God to move on those little hearts and raise them from the dead. Sovereign over the end. Sovereign over the means. No one goes to heaven 
without hearing and believing the gospel. No one goes to heaven without being chosen by God. Do you see that? God chooses. And yet God chooses the means to bring us there. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Sovereign over the end. Sovereign over the means. Our passage ends in verse 44 with the promise of God fulfilled. We're told that every person on this ship was brought safely to land. And this particular day on the Mediterranean Sea, God kept His Word. God kept His Word and He always does. That's the encouragement for us. We're not in the middle of the ocean this morning. We're sitting right here. Almost 2,000 years removed from this story. But we're getting a glimpse. This is who God is. The God who always keeps His Word. Verse 25, Paul says this. I have faith in God... That it will be exactly as I have been told. That's what the Word of God is exhorting us to this morning. That we would have faith in God. That it would be exactly as God has promised to us. Exactly as God has promised to us. Appropriate qualifiers. We've already mentioned these. We do not have a specific situational promise. That the Apostle Paul had in this particular text. Okay? We don't have that promise, that blanket promise that nobody, that you can go jump in the Gulf of Mexico and nobody's going to drown. We don't have that promise specific to this particular situation. But what we do have is rock solid gospel promises that take us even way past you will not die. That tell us things that even if you die, I will raise you from the dead. Even if you die, I will never cast you off. You will be with me in paradise. Anchors. And this passage is exhorting us that we would be fully convinced, having faith in God, that it will be exactly as we have been told. And think about how this applies to us in the midst of our trials of various kinds. I don't know anything that glorifies the trustworthiness of God more than in the middle of suffering, someone standing on the rock of the promises of God. In the middle of suffering, not on the best day, not on every day is a Friday, but in the pit on the worst day. When everything with the human eye says the opposite, they rest and they trust in the Word of God. That glorifies God's trustworthiness. That I don't go off of what my eyes can see. I stand on the Word of God. This is the exhortation from this passage. That in the midst of trials, we would be disciples of Jesus who are filled with faith. It will be exactly as God has promised us. I want to give you a few examples of this in the, in the Old Testament. Here's what you're looking for as I read these passages. You're looking for the surroundings and the circumstances to be really, really bad. And you're looking for this holy pivot in a human heart that says, but God, and then standing on His promises. Psalm 46. Listen close. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Do you imagine that this morning? That you're standing on planet earth, and then all of a sudden it, it unrolls like a scroll before your feet. And the Word of God says in that moment that you don't have to fear because God is your refuge. God is your strength. God is your very present help in trouble. Though the earth gives way. Though the earth gives way. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see what the Word of God offers us? That if the circumstances that we look around and find ourselves in, our everything is cut off. The Word of God holds out these promises of a faithful God that even then we can rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. And so I hope you find yourself encouraged and I hope there's some zeal in your heart this morning as you see Paul crashing around lost at sea. And we, we ask the Lord, Lord, I want faith like that. Lord, I want faith like that. That glorifies you. I don't want fair weather faith, Lord Jesus, where I serve you and trust you and believe you when everything goes my way. I don't want fair weather faith. I want that faith that you can cast me out into the raging sea about to be swallowed up by a hurricane. And I want to stand on the promises of God. Lord, give me that faith. I want to glorify you, Lord. You're worthy to be trusted. Paul says, have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And to anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ, I want to tell you what this story should provoke you to think about and how you should respond. This story is about physical salvation. Okay? And that, and that Greek word for safely in, that, in verse 44, that's the word for saved. Okay? This is a story of physical salvation. That there were 276 lost men and God saved them from physical death. God saved them from physical death. And what this story is supposed to encourage you towards this morning and have you to consider... Is that the God who is able to save from physical death in this story. He's able in your life to do the even greater work. Of saving you from spiritual death. And so you might not be drowning about to drown in the sea this morning. But the Bible promises you that if you do not know Jesus Christ. That you are drowning in your sins. You are drowning in your sins. You are about to go under. You don't have any promise that you will draw breath for another second, much less another day. You are drowning in your sins outside of Jesus Christ. And you are about to be swallowed 
by this hurricane of God's wrath. That is, that is every person outside the Lord Jesus. And this story is an encouragement to you. That the Word of God, the God of promise, that's able to bring about physical death. He can do the even greater work in your life. He can save you from your sins. He can save you from your sins. Many of you remember the story of Jesus and the paralytic. Mark's Gospel. Jesus does this exact thing. He, he demonstrates His power to bring about physical salvation. And then He uses that to pivot to His even greater power to bring about salvation from sin. So you remember that story. Is they, they let this paralytic, this friends, the friends of the paralytic, let him down into the midst of the room where Jesus was preaching. And Jesus asked him a question. And He said this, Which is harder for me to say? Which one is harder for me to say? He said, That your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your mat and walk. Which one is harder for Jesus to do? Deliver in, in, in a physical way from a hurricane on the Mediterranean Sea? Or save you from your sins? And Jesus says this in that story, That you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to that man, rise, take up your mat and walk. Rise, take up your mat and walk. Every miracle in the Word of God is meant to convince you that God is able to do the even greater miracle in your life of saving you from your sins. And I would, I would make an appeal to you this morning that the most rational thing that you could possibly ever do if you do not know Christ is that you would entrust your eternal soul to the God who cannot lie and the God who cannot fail. And Jesus has called to you this morning. John 6, verse 37. Here's His promise. Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Never ever cast out. This is our faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, You are the rock, God. Lord, we know that about You, God. We know it from Your Word. God, my brothers and sisters, You've given us an experience, God, of Your faithfulness. And we do, God. We ask for more, Lord. God, we ask that by the power of the Spirit that You would help us to put to death unbelief in our life. All those places in our hearts, God, where we're not fully assured, fully convinced that, that as You have said, so it will be, Lord. And we ask, God, that You would kill it. Lord, we ask that You would give us that beautiful, precious, tested faith, God. And as You lead us into these trials, God, that You would keep us, that You would guard us, that You would purify us. Lord, we ask for that precious gift of faith to be distributed in this room today, Lord. That those who do not know You, God, that You would grant repentance, that You would grant faith, and that You would cause men and women to come to You, Lord. And Your promises that You will never cast them out. Save souls, Lord. Save souls, Lord Jesus, in this church. Lord, we call out to You today. 
Thank you for your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.
members of Grace Community Church, uh, take about a five-minute break. Members of Grace Community Church, take a five-minute break. Uh, say goodbye to visitors, and we'll be back up.
Okay, members of Grace Community Church, if you go ahead and move this way and have a seat, we're going to get started in just a moment. So members of Grace Community Church, go ahead and grab a seat. Alright, let's go ahead and grab a seat here guys, about to get started. Go ahead and grab a seat and we will we will get started here. We've got some ballots right now that are going out. Uh, as you go ahead and grab your seat, <laughs> as you go ahead and grab your seat, uh, throw a hand up if you do not have a ballot. We're about to vote on the 2019 budget. Throw a hand up if you do not have one of these ballots. All right, see the man's over here. They're going out. Everybody needs one. Go ahead and grab your one. Yeah. <laughs> 
Dustin, Dustin Cook told me that the end is we need to pass this budget, but the means is you got to sit down and vote. Okay. <laughs> All right, so just to explain that very quickly, it seems obvious, um, you got your name, please put your name there, no anonymous votes. Uh, yes, if you approve the 2019 budget that we discussed a couple weeks ago, so just mark yes if you do, and no if you do not, and there's some room there for comments. If you wanna make any comments, we'll pass these back up in just a moment, and we'll be sure to check those things out. Um, Anybody not have a ballot to vote? We don't have one here. Anybody? There's some back there. Where are the extras? Here they are. Just keep your hand up so anybody with extras can take them. There's some over here. Thank y'all. Sorry about that. Okay. Everybody's got a ballot. Okay. So let me repeat those instructions. Simple. So go ahead and fill that out now. And uh, if I can get a few brothers to start kind of making their way back, and you can just pass those into the middle, and we'll bring them all up here now. Somebody relieve Papa. <laughs> Yeah, so go ahead and pass this back in, and brothers that are receiving them, you can just bring them up here. Just set them right here on the table. We'll, we'll look at them after the meeting. All right, let me. Any others that need to come in, throw a hand up if you need to turn another one in. Okay. So um, let me mention this real quick. We're going to be, you know, over the years, as was mentioned in that meeting a couple weeks ago, we've had time to grow and learn some things uh, since we did our first church constitution. And so we're going to be revising the church constitution over the next little while. Uh, you'll receive an email uh, about that for the sake of reviewing it and any kind of critiques, helpful critiques that you may offer for that constitution. So I'm just telling you that to say be looking for that in your email. Uh, we'll send that to you. We'll receive any kind of uh, encouragement, critiques, those kind of things. And then we'll eventually look to, before we move forward, to vote to change the, uh, to revise the constitution there. So. That cleared everybody. You want to say anything else about that? Yeah. Okay. Just as you as you read the Constitution, the Constitution is 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 the third of three documents of Grace Community Church. Doctrinal statement: what we believe. Uh, summary of what we believe. Um, our church covenant is a summary of how we will live. 
And then our constitution is going to be a document that describes how we're organized and how we make decisions. And so there's some necessary legal type language in that constitution. 99.9% of the decisions that we make as a church will never, you know, you know, even even approach needing some of that detail. But some of those details in there are important details to set up our church for 50, 70, 100 years. So if you have any questions about that, um, we do want to hear from you when we send that constitution out. And then just a quick word about the building committee. Um, you know, we laid out our plans at the last members meeting. And one of the things that we wanted to do, so the builder, building committee is Blake Jeter, Brett Jeter, and Brandon Boland. And one of the things that those brothers wanted to do is we recognize that in the church, we hope everybody cares about, you know, how the church's resources are spent and what we do. We hope there's nobody that's just like, yeah, I don't care, you know. Um, but we also recognize that there are different levels that, that people care about such things. And so, um, and this is op open to men and women who are members of the church. If you care significantly about, you know, this decision and want to understand more about what's going on, those brothers are going to organize a meeting to, uh, to hear from you. If you have feedback you want to give them, if you want to be a little closer um, to kind of what they're thinking through, they're going to organize a meeting to hear from you. So if you want to be a part of that meeting, make sure you let Brett Jeter, Blake Jeter, or Brandon Boland know. All right? All right. Let's take a second to pray. I want to specifically, since we all got us all together here, let's pray specifically over the way that we use our resources and the things that we're voting on today for sure. And then also, I want to read this verse, and I'm, I just want to pray this for us as well. Honestly, just something that's on my heart to pray for our church. In Acts 14.21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And two things I see in that verse is uh, Christians as gospel proclaimers, uh, evangelists, and Christians as disciple strengtheners, building up and strengthening the church. So I want to pray that God would strengthen us in those two areas as we pray. So in closing, let's pray. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much that we can come before you right now, again as a church and specifically as members of Grace Community Church. God, we want to be submitted to You. We want to honor You with our lives, God. We want to glorify You with all that we are. And God, I know that that includes money and resources and our jobs and, and all these things, Lord. And God, so we just want to say now as a church, we submit these things to You. We belong to You. We are Your slaves. We're Your servants, God. And all that we have is Yours. And all that we've been gifted with, God, comes from You. And so, God, I ask you, please, we just submit that to you, Lord, and I ask you, please, that you would allow us in your mercy to use all of our resources, all the things that you give us and gift us with for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would, you would protect us from sins of covetousness and greed and pride and all these evil things, Lord, and make us humble, lowly, generous servants of yours. And God, teach us how to be more mature in that area. God, I pray that just like 
Just like you laid aside all things, Lord, you laid aside riches to become poor like us so that we would lay aside our things and, and become poor for the sake of Your Gospel and Your glory. Lord, I pray also that You would make us faithful Gospel preachers, every single one of us, God. That You would remove from us hindrances of personality or, or sin or whatever it might be, God, and You would make us all fishers of men. Faithful fishers of men. And God, please make us all strengtheners of the church. God, I pray that You would take the gifts that You've given all across this body and the concern and love that You've planted in brothers and sisters all across this body. And God, use us to strengthen the church, to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ. Make us skilled in that. Make us faithful in that. And God, we commend these things to You for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.